Hey everybody, so great to be with you and a special greeting to those of you who are joining us for the first time today, whether here in the room or online from really wherever you are. Uh, as Ryan mentioned, we're in week two of a series that I've called Castaway. And as I mentioned last week, it's truly one of the most intriguing sets of talks that I've ever put together. Uh, it's based on a framework that I developed many many moons ago for an assignment I was given during a seminary class called apologetics. Uh, now, if you're unfamiliar with the term, apologetics is a fancy Bible nerd word that's used to describe an organized defense of religious beliefs. Basically, uh, being able to defend or articulate why you believe what you believe. Uh, anyway, the assignment in the class was to imagine that you found yourself stranded on a deserted island that upon exploration wasn't completely deserted. So you're already loving this professor, right? Uh, he said, one morning while you're out for a walk on the beach, you come upon a guy who actually has been stranded on the island himself for years. And, and not surprisingly, he like lights up when he sees you and he's overjoyed to have another human being to talk to. He spent lots of time with monkeys and it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and so you spend the next few hours getting to know each other. Like, where are you from? And do you have family? And, and how about kids and, and pets? And what's your favorite movie? And, and then eventually, you know, he learns that you went to seminary and wonders about the whole God, Jesus, religious thing. Uh, he confesses that he really has never been a person of faith, but he's always been fascinated by people of faith. Uh, he said that, you know, he never really felt any sort of need in himself to dig into the whole supernatural thing because he said, well, I never really found it necessary to help figure out this whole human experience. And then he says, you know, how did you come to faith? How did you cross the line? And so the argument for, or the assignment for the class, rather, was to make an outline of how you might respond in a situation like that. And the framework that I developed for that assignment and, and turned in for a grade eventually became the framework for this series. And full disclosure, I got a B plus on the assignment. <laughs> so if a few of you are like, that was good, but it wasn't completely compelling. The professor thought the same thing. I'll also point out that when I asked about the B+, he informed me that, this is a quote, Jesus himself wouldn't get an A in my class. And I thought, well, that's one grading philosophy. Thanks for telling me in advance, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you weren't with us last week, uh, you should know that I began the series by laying out as best I could the case for a creator. In other words, I chased down the answer to the question of how a rational individual could come to believe that we're not here by accident. And I noted that in the end, after considering the evidence presented to me by scientists, that's all those physicists, biologists, chemists, and other nerds who were regularly beat up in high school, a few of us are in the room, welcome, fellow nerds, yeah. Um, after reviewing all the information, I simply don't have enough faith not to believe in a creator. Uh, and when you look, his fingerprints are all over our world. Or, as a friend said years ago, perhaps our fingerprints are all over his world. That's like a mic drop, but it wasn't my quote. It's like, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, there's a prominent British astronomer by the name of Fred Hoyle. Uh, he's the same guy who actually famously coined the phrase the Big Bang for the first time. And he talks about this reality, the fact that we're not here by accident. And, and here's a quote from Fred. He said, if one proceeds directly and straightforwardly in this matter... One arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials, that's a fancy way to say us and other living things, with all their amazing measure of order, must be the outcome 
of intelligent design. In other words, there must be a creator of everything that we've ever experienced and everything that we can know. We're not here by accident. Something or someone has engineered the whole thing. All right, and if you missed that talk, you want to hear it, you can catch up on the website. But with our time this morning, what I want to do is make what I believe to be a second undeniable observation about the world in which we live. Uh, because if I could get Beach Guy to acknowledge that based on the evidence presented to us by science, uh, belief in a creator is not only possible but actually reasonable, then I would describe to him what I see as the second step towards a defensible faith. And it's the reality, and we'll put this up on the screen, that if there's a creator then something has gone wrong, like very wrong. And isn't that an uplifting thought to get you going on a sunny Sunday morning, right? But, but seriously, I mean, I mean, think about it. There's no way that a creator would intentionally design a world that at times seems to be so completely off the rails. And our world is, at times, completely off the rails. Maybe you've noticed, yeah? I mean, that's an observation that ancient people would have made whenever moms and babies were lost during complications of childbirth or, or whenever volcanoes or tornadoes or floodwaters leveled their village or whenever droughts destroyed their crops and brought starvation or, or whenever a beloved patriarch, you know, passed from this life and, and left families and communities with a gaping hole in it with regards to leadership, with regards sometimes to love. It's also an observation that we modern people make while watching the evening news uh, or if you've never seen it, watching your Facebook feed for news, right? Or, or maybe when you visit a friend who's at a hospital downtown and they're hooked up to machines which are pumping them full of chemicals that hopefully are strong enough to kill off cancer cells and hopefully not too strong and, and, and kill them in the process. And in moments like these and in so many other moments, um, it's easy to imagine that if someone had a blueprint for the human experience, if someone had like an original in the beginning sort of a plan for people and the world in which we live, then something has gone horribly wrong. Because the world in which we live, while undeniably beautiful at times, is also undeniably broken. But I think there's more too, because if we're honest, not only is our world broken, we are a little broken too. Uh, something's wrong in our world and something's wrong with us. Or maybe something's wrong in us, uh, like all of us. And I know this because I work with us <laughs> and I am us. <laughs> um, and I've noticed something about us, uh, like the fact that every January, a whole bunch of us decide that the time has finally come to try and fix us. You, you've ever had this experience? Yeah, right. And we make promises and we sign up for gym memberships and we buy self-help books and we go to seminars, and we listen to podcasts, and we go to hypnotherapists uh, and pay $100 an hour to try to help us quit smoking or lose weight, um, and we fill our minds, and we empty our wallets, and yet after all of our well-intentioned efforts, we often still don't do the things that we know that we should do, right? Something is wrong with us. And I know you're like, man, I'm going to find a church with more hope in it. Just stay tuned. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, but, but think about it. We continue to buy things we know we shouldn't buy. We continue to overindulge in substances that we know aren't good for us. Uh, we continue to spend too much time chasing conspiracy theories on social media and not enough time chasing after some invisible force on a treadmill. Treadmills are a little weird, are they not? Like, what are we chasing? I don't even know. But yeah, they're there. More time there would be good for us, but we don't do it. We continue to visit websites that we know we shouldn't visit, and we continue to pursue relationships that we know aren't healthy for us. 
In other words, we continue to do things that we know we shouldn't do, things that don't take our lives in the right direction, things that take our lives in the wrong direction, things that hurt us, things that hurt others. But we do them anyway. All that to say, if we're honest, there's not just something wrong in our world, there's something wrong in us. And this wrongness has been a part of the human condition well, for at least a couple thousand years. And we know this because around 2,000 years ago, a pastor named Paul confessed his struggle with all of this in a letter to some of the first Christians living in the city of Rome, a letter that later made its way into the New Testament of our Bibles. Paul said it this way. He said, I do not understand what I do. And this is a great time for a Christian moo. You know what that is? And you're like, you see something profound in church and you go, hmm. Like that, yeah? Yeah, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And you're like, wow, this is so me. But I hate what I do. For I have the desire to do what is good. But I cannot carry it out. He goes on. He's like, for I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Because you're kind of new to the Bible and you tried reading it yourself. And the Bible is full of a whole bunch of stuff that isn't very easy to understand. But you're like, dude, those verses? That totally makes sense, right? I mean, even if you're not a person of faith, you should be able to get behind what Paul writes in those verses. Because if we're honest, we all struggle to do the things we know that we should do. And we all struggle not to do the things that we know we shouldn't do. Uh, so, all right, in this point in the conversation with Beach Dude, um, he might say something like, as I imagine it, okay, 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 I confess that I'm not perfect. I mean, we all make mistakes. I'll give you that much. But he might say, but how does that tell us anything about God? And in response to this hypothetical question, I'd say something, well, that's a fair question. And in order to answer it, um, we need to talk a little bit about mistakes. That was the word that you used. Uh, fortunately, I have memorized the definition of mistake from dictionary.com for such a time as this in my hypothetical conversation on the beach. So here is the definition. A mistake is an error in action, calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning, carelessness, or insufficient knowledge. In other words, mistakes are errors that are made by accident. You can't make a mistake on purpose. A purposeful mistake is like an oxymoron. And deep down, we all know this. Uh, and, and we see this in our world. I mean, I remember a few years back watching a politician uh, who, during a press conference, confessed to a four-year mistake that blew up his family and ruined his reputation. And I remember thinking, okay, time out, dude. How exactly do you make a four-year-long mistake? Like, at some point, you had to know that what you were doing was wrong. I mean, and I believe you're sorry that you got caught, right? <laughs> But, that, but a four-year-long whatever that was was not a mistake. Again, that was something else. And, and I say that because I think that something else gets to the heart of what's really wrong with us. I mean, if you make a mistake, you learn from it, and you correct your lack of information, you correct your lack of reasoning, and you don't do it again and again <laughs> and again. So it's not simply that we make mistakes which raises the question, okay, if it's not mistakes, then what is wrong with us? Well, amazingly, the authors of the Bible, both the New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors, leverage a word that helps explain our situation. And it's a word that's a little, uh, you've heard it before, and it isn't very popular in our culture, even though I think it's profoundly helpful. And it's the word sin. 
Um, our friends at dictionary.com define sin this way. They say sin is a deliberate violation of some religious or moral principle. And the key word here is, of course, deliberate. <laughs> when we sin, we do something we want to do even though we know it's wrong. We sin on purpose. That's the difference between a mistake and a sin. And now here's why all that matters to you and me in the real world, and I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, you don't fix a sin and a mistake in the same way. I, I mean, imagine this. Um, if you catch your partner doing something that they know is wrong, uh, and, and you, you catch them in the moment, they might look at you and say, I'm sorry. But the problem is both of you know sorry isn't enough in that situation. Sorry covers a mistake, but this was more than a mistake. This was a sin. They, they knew what they were doing was wrong, and they chose to do it anyway. Or maybe one more example just for fun. Imagine your teenager is watching a movie in the basement with their significant other, um, and they promise before going downstairs to honor your stipulations about physical contact among teenagers in your house. Um, and th this rule was instituted, of course, years ago as after your family watched the movie The Emperor's New Group, truly the greatest movie of our time, okay? Uh, and you call this policy the no-touchy rule, Okay, those who are not married shall not touch each other in your house. And they were like, we, you know, say, remember the rule, remember the rule. They go downstairs, um, pledging to honor your intentions. And you go downstairs about 20 minutes later to get some canned peaches from the canning jars um, that are stored down there. Right. And uh, you notice upon entering the room that their eyes are not watching the 100-inch flat screen on the wall, if you know what I mean. They are, I think the term is snogging. Familiar with that one? Yeah. Um, and when you confront them, they immediately, you know, position themselves about four Bibles apart, sit up ramrod straight, look at you and say, sorry. <laughs> but see, somehow in that situation, sorry isn't going to cut it, is it? Right? Uh, because sorry covers a mistake, but, but this was more than a mistake. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and they chose to do it anyway, and so they will pay. I'm just kidding. That just threw that. Yeah, I, I say all that to say that um, a sin is more serious than a mistake because, well, sin breaks trust, and so sin breaks relationship. That's why sin damages relationships in a way that sorry can't restore. Okay, so so here are the questions that flows out of all of this. Um, first, what is wrong in us that we would choose? to sin? And is it possible that what's wrong with us is somehow connected to what's wrong in the world? And, and finally, how might all of this brokenness be connected to a creator and what he created? Uh, well, amazingly, the author of the first book in the Bible, a book called Genesis, uh, offers an answer to those questions. Uh, he reports that in the beginning, like after God had created the heavens and the earth, he created the first people. And then the author goes on to note that because God desired to be in a relationship with these people, like a real relationship based on love and trust, he gave people, the people he created, freedom. A freedom as to whether or not to trust him about where life is found. He offered them the option to turn away from his intentions and his design, to go their own way or to sin. And, 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 then, uh, and then he had to figure out a way to practically give them that potentiality. And so the author of Genesis records that God planted a specific tree in the center of the garden where he placed those first people. And then he said to the people, 
you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, like including the one in the center of the garden. He says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even though you can, you, you shouldn't, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And notice, you know, two things that are abundantly clear in this passage. First, these people had a practical choice as to whether they would trust God and not eat from the tree. I mean, they were free to, but God instructed them not to. And the second thing that I see in this passage is that their choice to turn away from God, uh, the choice to sin, came prepackaged with consequences. Now, the author of Genesis is clear that God loved the people he created so much that he was willing to risk rejection in order to build authentic relationship with them. He desired to be in a relationship with people who wanted to be in a relationship with him. And relationships require both trust and choice. I mean, think about it. If God created people without the ability to reject him, he'd have their compliance, but he wouldn't have relationship. He wouldn't have love. I've been thinking about this for like a long, long time because to me, this is right at the center of what it means to come to know God. And so years ago, I was prepping for a different talk and I, I came upon a quote from a renowned theologian named Norman Geisler. And, and he brilliantly summarizes this concept and I love the way he does. Here's what, here's what Norman wrote. He says, since God is love, and we see that right in the text, he cannot force himself on anyone against their will. He says, forced love is not love. And he goes on, love must work persuasively, but not coercively. And, and I absolutely love the way he frames that. It's almost like he says, this, as soon as coercion enters a relationship, the possibility for love like evaporates. Like you might have proximity, but you don't have relationship. And again, God wants to be with people who want to be with him. He loves people and he wants people to love him. And so he took a risk. He granted freedom and he planted a tree. Well, eventually the day came when the first people became convinced that God was somehow holding out on them, that, that they could find a better life apart from his design than by following his design. And so they did the one thing that God had told them not to do. They chose to ignore his direction. They chose to do something they knew was wrong. Again, it was no mistake. Uh, and something they knew had consequences. They sinned. And in response to that first sin, um, you know, as God had promised, death entered the human story for the first time. But, but something else happened that day in the garden, something much more insidious. Because on the day sin entered the human story, it was released like a virus on planet Earth, a virus that impacted everything and everyone. It, you know, said another way, like prior to that day, there was nothing wrong with the world. The Bible talks about Adam and Eve, would, those first people would walk with God, like they knew his will, they would walk with him in the time where the evening breezes were blowing cold. And it's like every, there was nothing wrong in the world and there was nothing wrong with us. But after that day, floods and droughts and tornadoes and hurricanes and disease and death all became a part of the human experience. Like our world still has these flashes of beauty and flashes of brilliance, but there are also these moments that you're like, 
why does life have to hurt so much? After that day, not only did the creation sort of become polluted or corrupted or twisted, but, but people began, like through their choices, to regularly and systematically move creation farther and farther away from the way that the Creator designed it to be. In fact, the continued freedom that God's love for people requires explains much of the pain that we experience in life today. One of my favorite authors, a guy named C.S. Lewis, he of Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe fame. You with me on this guy? Yeah. He, he famously noted as much in a classic work called The Problem of Pain. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, when souls become wicked, in other words, when we get kind of twisted by sin, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another. And this perhaps accounts for four-fifths, like 80% of the suffering of men and women. He said, it is men, uh, not God, who have produced racks and whips and prisons and slavery and guns and bayonets and bombs. He says, it is by human avarice or human stupidity, not by the churlishness of nature. I love that word, churlishness. I have no idea what it means, but doesn't it sound good? Churlishness, yeah. That we have poverty and overwork. He, he says, you know what, if, if, you're, if you're looking at the world and you're like, why does it hurt so bad? And why doesn't loving God intervene? He's like, listen, the loving God has intervened and he's given you freedom and, and humans have made a mess of things. And sin has twisted everything now. And so we live in this space where, where we still see the beauty of creation, but, but it's undeniable that something's wrong in the world and something is wrong in us because we do things on purpose that we know take things in the wrong direction that hurt us and hurt other people. So, all right, as I imagine uh, the conversation with Beach Dude at this point, I would, I, I, I would think he would say something like, okay, okay, it is very hard to disagree with your arguments so far. Thank you. I got a B plus on this. Right. Uh, he said, I mean, after what you said, I'm, I'm not, it's not unreasonable to believe that there's a creator. And, um, and the fact that something is wrong, both in the world and in me, is, is pretty undeniable. And he says, but, but what am I supposed to do with all that? I mean, if, if I were a creator and the first people that I created torpedoed my creation, like, I would be furious. Um, to which I would smile and say, you know, let's pick up the conversation here next time we talk. <laughs> because where the story goes next is pretty incredible. Because as it turns out, this creator did not give up on people, not by a long shot. In fact, this creator has actually been in contact with broken people. How's that for a cliffhanger? <laughs> All right. So if you're here in the room, so oh, by the way, I should just, that was a little subtle. You need to come back next week, okay? I went to this church and they said everything was wrong in the world and I'm screwed up. And then they sent me to Panera. <laughs> the story does get better from here, I promise. All right, so if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand um, and, I, uh, and I'll pray for us and then we will reconvene next week to hear about this contact. All right. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the king of the universe, as the creator of heaven and earth, and as the one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. We thank you that even in our rebellion, you do not abandon us, but you chase us down with an incredible love, 
a love that surpasses understanding because you desire relationship with us. And looking ahead, we also celebrate the fact that in Jesus, you made a restored relationship possible. And so we thank you for the grace in which we stand. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled so that we might be free. And I pray that this week, um, you would fill our minds with reminders of how much you love us and how much you desire to use us to help your kingdom to come and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we thank you for grace for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. It is in the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you back next week.